Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We're going to switch gears here, but we're going to stay with the military, and we're going to talk about rebuilding or re-equipping our Canadian Armed Forces. New submarines for the Royal Canadian Navy are on the uh, order sheet. Well, they're going to be. The plan is there that they're going to be ordered, but need to know what we need. Along with a, a fleet of frigates, I think 15 frigates, and an expected announcement by Ottawa this year with a final decision of which fighter jet will be purchased to replace the CF-18s, still in operation. Many of them are older than their pilots. We also have entertainers, um, Neil Young and uh, politicians, Stephen Lewis and uh, scientists, Dr. David Suzuki, and others. They've issued an open letter saying that Canada should not be buying new fighter jets, that we can better spend the money on other endeavors. Well, joining us on the program is Vice Admiral Mark Norman. Uh, the Admiral was the commander of the Royal Canadian Navy, was also the second in command of the Canadian military and served this country so admirably, no pun intended, for so many years. Admiral Norman, good to have you with us. It's almost an honor to speak with you, sir. Well, good afternoon, Roy, uh, to you and your listeners. Uh, interesting series of topics you've got on the go, as always. Well, let me ask you to just give us your thoughts on this country's responsibility to the interpreters who served with our forces. And we had General Milner tell us last weekend, and he repeated it today, that the Afghan campaign veterans, Canadian veterans, see these interpreters as comrades in arms. Well, certainly I would agree. General Milner is a friend and a former colleague, and he's not alone. He's one of the many um, amazing Canadians who have uh, spoken out on this issue, and uh, I think I think we do have an obligation. Um, I, I believe uh, Canada is uh, known worldwide for opening its uh, borders, opening its arms uh, to those in need, and uh, certainly when we're dealing with a, a community who have served alongside uh, the women and men uh, of Canada who served in Afghanistan and uh, th themselves who sacrificed and are continuing to sacrifice as they stay in a country that has been left in turmoil and their lives are, uh, are being threatened. I think we do, we do have an obligation to look after them, and I think that Canada can uh, bring them here and uh, give them new lives uh, here, as uh, has been the case with literally millions of, uh, of new Canadians. Yeah. Admiral, let's talk about this, uh, the state of the current submarine fleet, and what it is that we need. We had problems from the start with the four subs that were bought from the uh, from the UK. I remember speaking with a British politician who said that Canada should be suing Britain for selling them those submarines. But then somebody else said, buyer beware. What's the state of our submarine reality right now? Well, as you said, I mean, we've got four submarines which were built uh, in the 19, late 1980s. Uh, they were... Uh, decommissioned by the Royal Navy. Uh, they sat <clears throat> inactive for the better part of a decade before we took delivery. Uh, they've had a very um, unfortunate um, history um, of uh, transition into Canadian service. <clears throat> they're now, you know, they're now operating uh, as a fleet of four submarines as best you can, which means on any given day, um, you'll have uh, two submarines available. 
You'll have a third potentially available, either ramping up or ramping down from operational availability. And you have a fourth submarine in uh, in deep maintenance, and that's that's uh, a function of uh, keeping them um, operating. And uh, they've got about another, I'd say, 15 years uh, potentially of life. We're looking at the mid 2030s um, at at uh, at the out at the outer edge. Um, for uh, their potential lives, and uh, it's entirely appropriate and timely that uh, there should be uh, a discussion now about uh, what we should do to look for replacement capability. So, as I understand it, Canada has budgeted some $60 billion approximately for the new submarines. What do we need as far as submarine capability is concerned, and will that $60 billion in today's dollars, military dollars, buy us what we require? Yeah, so I think uh, start with the financial side of this because it's always uh, um, an emotive issue. It's always an issue that uh, raises significant concern. That's a placeholder. Um, it won't know the uh, the true price uh, of the of the submarine capability in whatever form it takes um, until this program is uh, much more advanced. And we don't want to repeat the uh, recent errors of the past where. We anchor in uh, an estimate, a very early preliminary uh, rough order estimate, and then uh, discover uh, as things evolve that it's not actually the amount that was estimated. And then we have a whole bunch of um, rhetoric back and forth about our inability to predict. So I would describe that budget. uh, It's not a budget. uh, It's an estimate. And um, that's part of the reason why we need to start a uh, project in order to refine um, the estimate into a proper budget. Now, as it relates to the capability, well, uh, what we need is um, basically a newer and better version of what we have now. Uh, we, we need the ability to operate um, submerged for extended periods of time. We need the ability to transit large distances because um, we do have the largest maritime state in the world, and it's a long way from uh, Victoria or Halifax uh, up to the Northwest Passage or even up into the Arctic Ocean. It's also a long way to the potential theaters of operation where we may need to deploy these submarines beyond our own backyard. Um, so they're going to have to be um, fairly reasonable in size. They're going to have to have a good endurance. Uh, they're going to need to have um, an, an ability to operate submerged for extended periods of time. We're going to need a, a submarine that's able to operate in or correction, uh, near or under the ice, um, which we don't currently have. And uh, there's a lot of very interesting technologies that are now available, which weren't available decades ago, uh, that could allow uh, Canada to have that capability. And we need a larger fleet. Um, and we need a larger fleet because we're already seeing that, as I described earlier, uh, four gets you two, occasionally three, Um and uh, that's just not enough to meet the commitments or potential requirements that we're going to have going forward. So, Admiral Norman, every time there's uh, an effort made for a procurement for Canada's military, and there are significant dollars involved, and these, these, this equipment isn't inexpensive. It costs a lot of money to, as you know far better than I, to purchase and then operate uh, this military equipment. But the question is, why does Canada need it? The Americans have everything. They'll take care of us. Why do we need submarines? Why do we need 15 frigates? Why do we need new jet fighters? 
what's the and and you know what the letter obviously the letter that's been sent by um, various people who disagree with the idea of fighter jets to the prime minister. What's the answer? Well, I think the answer has a couple of layers to it. I mean, the first one is that uh, one of the ultimate responsibilities of a national government is uh, to ensure the defense and security of its citizens. Now, some will argue, as we've seen in the letter uh, this past week, that uh, there are other security threats, there are other threats to the safety of Canadians, and I don't disagree. But the reality is that the physical security um, of the country and its approaches is an essential function uh, of government. And that, whether people like it or not, and I know that many don't, uh, that requires um, having um, military capability. Yes, of course the Americans are there, but the Americans have their own challenges. Uh, and uh, friendship uh, and alliance that we have with the United States has its limits. Um, and they have reasonable uh, expectations that Canada is going to, um, you know, carry its own weight in terms of the defense of North America. Um, so we need to know what's going on uh, in our own approaches, our own backyard, if you will. Uh, we need we need to know what's going on in the broader neighborhood. And then I believe Canada has a responsibility. We're a wealthy nation. We're a nation that uh, has uh, e- evolved um, based on our tradition of helping others. Um, that tradition is likely to continue. And I believe that we have responsibilities to uh, help out around the world when it, when and if it's required. And unfortunately, that may require us to use military force. Again, it's not a universally popular um, perspective, but uh, the, the sad reality of uh, our history and of the modern world is that things are getting tougher. They're not getting better. And um, we, need, we need robust um, capability in order that we can intervene in an effective manner. And I would say most importantly, that the young women and men who we ask to serve this nation have the equipment that will, to the greatest extent possible, ensure their safety when they're out there doing the dangerous things that we ask them to do. And you've pointed out to us on this program in the past, we live in a fractious world and an increasingly fractious world. And to the people who say, well, let the Americans take care of us, uh, successive American presidents have told Canada to spend the agreed percentage of our GDP in building up our military. That's come from the White House. Yeah, and that's true. And, and uh, you know, you've heard me say that uh, I'm not necessarily hung up on the number itself, but I am a firm supporter of uh, Canada doing its fair share. And right. uh, when your closest and longest-serving uh, uh, ally and your closest neighbour and friend is telling you that you need to step up, you need to step up. Um, and uh, it, it's not a matter of um, what the right number is. It's a matter of um, making sure, as I said earlier, that you've got the right capabilities to look after your own um, sovereignty, your own approaches, uh, but also in, in our special circumstance here in North America, we have shared obligations with respect to the defense of North America. Plus, broader obligations with respect to the NATO alliance, and as I said earlier, um, our, our responsibilities as members of the international community. And that doesn't mean that those other priorities that, that the, the distinguished Canadians who wrote the letter were referring to. This is not a binary situation. It's not an either-or situation. And when it's presented as such, 
I think it's a, it does a disservice to the to the debate and to the discussion. You can have a robust discussion about the defense of Canada and what sorts of capabilities Canada should or shouldn't have without comparing it to a lot of the other issues that were put on the table in the letter. Yeah. Um, we are a wealthy nation. Uh, we, we can do both. Uh, we can have and should have uh, clean drinking water for Aboriginal communities and modern fighter jets. Uh, we shouldn't be juxtaposing those two as if they're in competition. I think right. that, that is, that's irresponsible. Admiral Norman, uh, let me come back to, rather than just talking about dollars and 88 fighter planes, let me ask you about the kind of world we live in. Because you've told, talked to us before about the fractious nature of this planet, of the, the countries that are opposing one another and seeing opportunity to take from others what they want for themselves. Just where are we headed? Are we headed toward a more peaceable reality, or do you have concerns that things are headed in the opposite direction? Well, I'm not going to try and predict uh, where we're headed, Roy, um, but I will say that I, I have significant concerns. Uh, you and I have discussed those previously. Um, I think uh, there are a number of indicators uh, that uh, I would say that things are probably going to get worse before they get better. Um, certainly, as we come out of the uh, the pandemic, um, we look at um, a lot of the uh, economic implications. We look at the levels of inequality uh, around the world. Uh, we look at the fact that there's uh, there's a handful of countries who are continuing to leverage, uh, or I would suggest, exploit um, the fact that the West has been distracted um, by. Uh, by uh, this uh, unprecedented health crisis. So, you know, it, it's, it's not necessarily good. And, and uh, I'm on the record, you and I have discussed uh, the continued aggressive uh, behavior of China, uh, particularly in their own backyard, but more globally as uh, they establish um, uh, relationships and, and bases uh, all around the world. They have an interest in the Arctic, which is our backyard. Uh, they're not shy about it, um, and these are the kinds of things that are going to affect um, our world in, in the coming decades. Right. Um, and, you know, we don't know exactly how it's going to play out, but uh, we want to be prepared. Um, yep. And, uh, you know, I think uh, many of your listeners would relate to uh, the realities that we've all just lived through the last couple of years. Um, were we really prepared for a global pandemic? The answer was no. Um, and can we draw some lessons from that? Of course we can. Right. Uh, and, and the lesson is that, sadly, there are a lot of things uh, in life uh, that um, require us to uh, prepare in ways which are not necessarily the way we would think uh, on a daily basis. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.